sermon text for today is Acts chapter 5, verses 14 through 35, and also 38 through 42. Hear the word of the Lord. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will, not be able to do, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day... In the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Thank you, Ivan. Uh, good morning again. My name is Brandon Lutz, the youth pastor here at Redeemer. We are continuing our, our series on the book of Acts. Last week we looked at Acts 4, and, and Acts 4 is where there's this, this pretty big change for the early church. There's a really big change for Christians. Acts 1 to 3 is, is kind of like the party. You know, Jesus has been resurrected. Uh, he's ascended to heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he has sent the Holy Spirit to guide them. To, to, and to lead his people. But in, in, in Acts 4 through 7, everything starts to go wrong for the early church. Everything starts to go wrong for these believers. You know, the, the religious leaders of the day, they're questioning them, they're arresting them, they're, they're beating them, and as we'll see in a couple chapters in Acts, Christians are being executed for their faith. But in the midst of all of this pain, in the midst of all this suffering and this persecution, the church is exploding in number. Thousands are, are coming to faith. And, and as we read this, we have to ask, like, how, how is this possible? I mean, this doesn't make any sense. How in the world is the church radically growing while they're going through all of this? Now, and the answer to this question is found in, in verse 29 as we see what these men are holding on to. Peter says, we must obey God rather than man. We must obey God rather than man. Another way of saying that is, is this, we need to live for God rather than man. We cannot let the, the fear of man control us and be the primary motivation our hearts. We, we have to live for God and live out of this great love that he has so graciously given us. And when we do that, when we, when we live for God and give our whole lives and our entire hearts to him, we too will be able to stand in the middle of pain, suffering, and even death, and we will be at peace. And not only will we be at peace, but we will have joy. We will have joy because we will be so rooted and fixed on the Father's love for us. So this morning I want to compare these two things, living for man versus living for God. You know, first, living for man. This is the way most people in our world live. This is the way most people in our culture live. And sadly, this is the way many of us live. You know, most people live to appease and gratify the wishes and the desires of others. We don't want to upset anyone. We don't want to cause or make any waves. We want people to like us. We could also call this having, as having a, the having a fear of man as, as having a fear of people. And when we think of fear, we, we instantly think of, of the things that we're afraid of. I, I saw the movie, excuse me, I saw the movie Arachnophobia at, at way too young of an age. Uh, I saw the movie, oh, we'll get to that in a second. Um, I, it was a horror movie about spiders, if you haven't gotten that. It didn't win any awards, so most of you probably haven't seen it. But this photography team uh, goes to the Amazon jungle, and when they come back, they bring back this, this killer, most poisonous spider ever uh, to this small rural town. And the, the spiders, they, they mate, they produce, and there's these baby spider killing machines going throughout the town. And, and people are dying. I was seven when I saw this movie. <laughs> Needless to say, I have a, a very unhealthy fear of spiders. I can handle the small ones uh, pretty well, but I don't know, when they get bigger than a quarter, that's, that's when my wife Rachel has to come in and save the day. <laughs> but this, this type of fear isn't, isn't what I mean when I say that we have a fear of man. Edward Welch, the author of the book, 
when people are big and God is small says this. Fear in the biblical sense is a much broader word. It includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people or needing people. However you want to put it, the fear of man can be summarized this way. We replace God with people. We replace God with people. You know, living for man or, or the fear of man for us, it, it, it takes many different uh, forms. You know, peer pressure, people-pleasing, codependency, being overcommitted, having a low self-esteem. Are you afraid of making mistakes? Do you find yourself second-guessing decisions, or do you find it hard, that you have a hard time making decisions? Do you elaborate stories sometimes? Do you ever tell little white lies? Those are two that I struggle with. Do you get easily embarrassed? Do you avoid a certain type of person or a certain type of people? You know, the point of these questions and, the, and these thoughts is, is to show that we all struggle with this in some way, shape, or form. If someone says, I don't struggle with this, well, then they're either lying or they're Jesus. So, which one is it? You know, and, and we see a great example of living for man or the fear of man in, in our text this morning. Verse 26 is where the religious leaders go and they get the apostles after they've been freed in the middle of the night. They have returned to the temple and they're preaching the good news of Christ. The very message the religious leader said, you can't say this. You are not allowed to say this. This is what they're proclaiming in the temple. Let me read verse 26 again so we can see the manner in which the apostles were taken. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now, we, we know that the, the council, these religious leaders, you, we know that they're angry. This is the, the third time that the, the apostles have gone out of the way and, and deliberately and intentionally disobeyed their, what they want them to do. So if, if they're angry, and, and you know they're angry, why don't they take the apostles by force? Why don't they go to these guys, rough them up a little bit, make an example out of them, and drag them back to the council? We see that they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They were afraid that their actions would not sit well with the people. There was a, a fear in their hearts that controlled them in this situation. If they were truly convicted, if they believed that they were in the right and the apostles were in the wrong, then, then the voice and the feelings of the people wouldn't have mattered. Their fear of the people overtook them. You know, and this is really relevant and, and widespread in our culture today. We have to tolerate and accept all people and all beliefs. You know, there's no one right answer. There is no one truth. The only right is that everyone is right. The only truth is that everything is truth. This is the voice of our culture today. And most of you are probably aware of this, but, but an issue that is going on in our country is uh, whether or not individuals who identify as transgender should be able to use a bathroom that they identify with. You know, it's a very hot topic in our culture. It's in the news. It seems like every day, whether it's North Carolina or, or something else going on, and everyone seems to have a very strong opinion on what they believe the right answer is or how they think this should be handled. 
Now, I don't, I don't know what the right answer is. That's not the point of this illustration. But currently, North Carolina is battling the federal government on this issue. The federal government has come out and they have stated that they are fighting for these laws because they believe that it is the, the constitutional rights and civil liberties of these individuals. You know, and, and maybe I'm wrong. I, I pray and I hope that I'm wrong, but it seems like they're being motivated out of the, the majority voice of our culture. They don't want to create any waves in our country right now, any that they can control. You know, but, but these kind of things, they're happening in our churches as well. Time magazine had an article that said, people are coming back to church more than ever right now. But people are, are church hopping to find a church that defines God the way they want to define God, as opposed to how God defines God. There's this church in California that changed its name to Happy Church. On the sign, it literally says, Happy Church. And, and when the pastor was asked why, why, the, why the change took place, he said, man, it brings people in. People want to come to a church that's going to make them feel happy. You know, so churches are moving from their focus being on the truth of God and the truth of the gospel to the focus of making people happy. And, and you know what? That's just, that's just not possible if the church is preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, the, the leaders, the elders, um, the ch- we want you to enjoy church. We want you to enjoy Sunday morning. It should be a great time of worship and fellowship. We want you to come on board with uh, our vision for planting churches throughout Winter Haven, uh, our heart for Winter Haven. We want you to get plugged into a community group where you can build lasting, deep friendships and relationships with others, but the message of the gospel is this. You are a sinner, and you are so messed up, you are so screwed up, and guess what? There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. That's how messed up you are. But God, but God loved us so much that he sent his one only son to live the perfectly obedient life in our place, and then to die the death that we all deserve. We can only become children of God, sons and daughters of God, through the work and through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's it. And this message, this message is offensive in our day and in our culture. People don't want to hear this, but we all desperately need to hear this. We all desperately need to cling to this. This message completely goes against the culture we live in today. The message today says that everyone is perfect just the way that you are. But the message of the gospel says everyone is broken just the way that we are. So the gospel is either offensive or it gives hope. Those are the only two options our hearts have. And if you're living for man, then the gospel is going to be offensive. Peter and the apostles, they're preaching the offensive message of the gospel. And how do these guys respond? They get offended. They get jealous. They get angry. We read that they get jealous because thousands are coming into the faith. But their emotions don't just stop at jealousy. Jealousy is just the beginning of this downward spiral for these men. After Peter tells the council that the apostles are going to preach Christ and Christ crucified, no matter what, no matter what their wishes are, the council doesn't just get mad. It says they were enraged. They were enraged to the point where they wanted to kill the apostles. They don't kill them but they wanted to. Do you see how, 
how living for man is a way of hiding and it's a way of being dishonest. You know, everything is very secretive. Everything is kind of happening behind closed doors. Everything is happening in darkness. It, it is a way of living in darkness. You're not being truthful to yourself. You know, recently we read the last chapters in the Gospel of Luke in community Bible reading. And in Luke 22, we read that the chief priests and the scribes begin to secretly plot that they would kill Jesus. And they're doing this behind closed doors because they are afraid of how the people would respond. Now, and later when Jesus is arrested, it is literally in darkness when Judas, the soldiers, and the religious leaders come to apprehend him. He is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he only has the disciples around him. And Jesus calls them out on this. He says, I have been standing in the temple with you all, not five to ten feet from some of you, day after day after day, and you could have arrested me then. But you're choosing now. He says, I I know that this is your hour, and it is the hour of darkness. Now, my good friend and, and pastor, Jonathan Winfrey, has a saying. He often says, nothing good happens after 8 p.m., Now, to be fair, that's his, that's his bedtime usually <laughs> on, on the weekdays, on the weekdays. He might push to 8.30 or 9. <clears throat> but, but I think we all, we all can kind of get what, what, he, what he is saying when he says that. A lot of times when we make dumb decisions, when we make foolish decisions, it tends to be when it's dark outside. Or it tends to be when there's not a lot of people around us. Or maybe we're even alone. Seniors, you should probably write that down. When I was in seventh grade, I remember going to a birthday party, and it was a, an all-guys sleepover where we had a lot of pizza, drank a lot of soda, and played a lot of video games. You know, 11 o'clock rolls around, uh, my friend's parents, they're already asleep, and, and one, of the, one of my friends, Matt, he suggests that, you know, you know it'd be really fun, guys, if we went egging in the, in the neighborhood next to us. So, of course, you know, seven, eight, seventh grade boys, and, and all of our, our boy wisdom, like, man, that's a great idea. And, and so we go egging in this neighborhood, uh, thinking, man, we are so cool. We're, we're breaking the law. We're not going to get caught. No one's going to see us. This, this story is really going to impress girls on Monday. <laughs> and then my friend Josh throws an egg. And what Josh didn't see is that there was a man sitting in a chair on the porch, not three feet from where the egg landed. So the man, this man starts yelling at us. He, he kind of starts chasing us, and we all, we all split and make it back to our friend's house. We think we made it. We didn't get caught. No one, no one saw where we were going. And so we're thinking, man, we're in the clear. We are safe and sound. Uh, 30 minutes later, there's a knock on the door. It's a police officer and, and the man whose house we had egged. Uh, fortunately for all my friends and myself, the police officer he, officer, he just made us apologize to this man. He made us go clean up the mess um, and he made us promise not to do this again. Now, we, we, wouldn't have done, we wouldn't have gone egging in the middle of the day. I mean, that's not fun. You're going to get caught. The first egg gets thrown. People are going to see you with the carton of eggs, and they know what you're doing. <laughs> so, uh, in this story, we, we were very wrong. We, we got caught. Uh, and as Jonathan says, nothing good happens after 8 p.m., Philosopher Soren 
Kierkegaard of the 19th century says that there is a much deeper fear that is underneath the fear of man. He says that the gaze of man awakens fear in us, how much more so the gaze of God. If we feel exposed by people, we will feel devastated by God. So when you think about God looking upon you, when you think about God looking down on us, how do you envision him? What emotions do you believe stir in God as he sees you? Is he angry? Is he disgusted? Is he shaking his head in disappointment? Maybe when you think about God, you, you don't see him as, he doesn't have any joy. There's no warmth. There's no smile on his face as he gazes upon you. You know, if this is a common theme in your heart, or if this is the only way you think God looks upon you, then you are forgetting a very fundamental and vital part of the gospel. Or even if this is how you think God responds when you fall into sin, then you have missed something. For believers, once your heart has been transformed by the love of God, then the Father only smiles upon you. The Father is only filled with joy as he gazes upon you. You know, living for man is going to become easier and easier for us to fall into as our country becomes less and less okay with Christianity. Living for man is going to be easier for, for you students to fall into. You know, peer pressure, the need for relationships, the need to feel like you belong, the, the need to be liked are going to be things that you face on a whole new different level in a couple weeks or a couple months. You know, and if this is something that we all struggle with, if, if we all have a bent to live for man, then, then what are we supposed to do? How do we combat this? And the only solution is that we have to fix our eyes on something that is infinitely greater than man. We have to fix our eyes on God and we have to live for him. Now, I love that it is Peter who is the one who is the vocal leader in this meeting before the council. The fact that it is Peter boldly proclaiming Christ should give us all hope. You know, Peter is the one disciple that denies Christ three times. The first, the first person that approaches Peter isn't a soldier. It isn't a, a nobleman. It isn't someone with power or someone with authority. The first person who approaches Peter on the night that Jesus is arrested is a servant girl. A small servant girl who has no authority and no power, yet Peter denies Christ to her. But again, just weeks later, Peter is boldly proclaiming Christ to these men who have the power and the authority to arrest him and to execute him. Peter and the apostles are intentionally and, and deliberately not obeying these men, but they're rather choosing to obey God. Peter crazily tells these men this, if, if the choice is to obey you or God, well, that's an easy answer for us, for we must obey God. So what has changed in Peter? What has happened in him to where there was once this, this fear of man, even from a little servant girl, to where now he is courageously living for God in front of men who can kill him? And there are two things that are very different about Peter, and he speaks of these things in verses 29 to 32. First, the Holy Spirit has been sent, and it's now at work in his heart so he can see things that he cannot see, so he can understand things that are not understandable on his own. But second... Peter calls Jesus his leader and his savior. Now, we, we call Jesus savior often. He is the savior for sinners. He, he saves us from our sins. That is very common. But Jesus is not called leader very often. 
In the English language, the word leader has this very wide range um, of, of people that you could describe as a leader. You could say a four-year-old is a leader, or you could say the president of the United States is a leader. But Peter calling Jesus a leader here has, has much more significance and weight to it. You don't just call anyone a leader. What Peter is really saying is that Jesus is his prince, Jesus is his captain, Jesus is his hero, Jesus is his champion. Jesus has come and he has become the champion of Peter's heart. Jesus has come and he is a hero that is unlike any other hero, real or myth. You know, superheroes, th- these movies are coming out every two weeks, it seems. And, and all these Marvel superheroes, they don't become heroes until they get their powers. You know, Captain America doesn't become a superhero until he's injected with that blue uh, super steroid serum or whatever it is. You know, the Hulk doesn't become a superhero until he somehow survives radiation poison and he gets super strength and he turns green when he gets angry. Iron Man isn't a superhero unless he puts on the powerful suit. And Jesus is unlike any of these men. Jesus is is Peter's hero. That's what Peter is proclaiming right here. Not because Jesus showed such great power, but because he gave up his great power. Jesus is a champion because he gave up his power and he gave up his glory. He became a man and he went to the cross and he died the death of a sinner. He died the death that Peter deserved. That is what Peter is boldly proclaiming to the council. That is what has changed in Peter's heart. Jesus is is the champion of Peter's heart. Jesus gave up everything, his power, his majesty, his glory, even his relationship with his father and his, his very own life. He gave it all up not to keep Peter from dying. He gave it all up so that Peter could live. And that is what Peter is doing now. Peter is boldly living for God. So are you living for God? Is Jesus the the champion of your heart? When Jesus is the champion of your heart, then, then you're only going to want to live for him. Living for man and the fear of man, it's always going to be a temptation. It's going to be a struggle for all of us. But our hearts won't be consumed by it. We won't be so crippled by this fear. Our hearts will be consumed by the love that Jesus showed us by giving up everything so that we could be brought into God's family. So how do we live for God? How do we live for God when it seems becoming so much harder to do so? How are these seniors supposed to live for God when they are getting ready to go to a new place with not a lot of people that they know? First and foremost, we, we have to keep our eyes fixed on the Father. When things got hard for Jesus and he was near the end of his earthly life, he didn't flee. He didn't come up with a new plan. He didn't give up on the plan that was set before him. He kept his eyes fixed on the Father. He prayed, Father, if there's another way, then please make it happen. But if there's not another way, if this is your will, then I'm on board. Life is going to be hard. Being a faithful follower of Christ is going to be challenging at times, But if we keep our eyes fixed on the Father, and if we stay, stay rooted in his love, then we will be able to live for God. Second, stay faithful to the smaller things in our lives. Be a good employee. Even when you don't want to, you feel like you're being treated unfairly. Dads and moms, be, be intentional with your relationship with your children. 
Don't fall into the temptation of just being their friend. Be their parent. That's what they need. Husbands, pursue your wives even on the, day, on the days where she makes you want to rip your hair out. Be a friend that is slow to speak and quick to listen. Be a friend that, that calls another friend out for the sake of lifting that person up, not making yourself feel or look better. Students, when you go off to college, stay rooted in God's Word. Get connected with the local church. Get connected with a campus ministry. Surround yourself with, with people who are going to push you to live for God. You know, and I call these things smaller things, but that really isn't true. These things are massive things for our lives. And they really, how we treat them, how we handle them, really do tell us that Jesus is the champion of our heart. Do you find joy in being a follower of Jesus? Are you delighted to live for God? Are you delighted to obey God? You know, the, the apostles were filled with joy even as they were beaten, beaten until almost dead, and they suffered because of their faith. They didn't question God. They didn't get angry at God. They rejoiced. They worshiped God, and they counted themselves worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. So may the good news of Jesus and the love of the Father overfill our hearts so that we always have joy as we live for God no matter what our circumstances are. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, uh, make us such a church. Make, make us such a people. Make us a church and make us a people that live for you no matter what the circumstances are in our lives. Father, it's so easy for, for all of us to fall under the spell of, of letting what we think others will think of us, we let that control us. Help us to be rooted in you and help our eyes to stay so fixed on you that we can stay consumed by the only thing that really matters, your love for us. Make us need you more and make us need people less. Father, again, we want to lift up the, the seniors who are about to start their next chapter of life. They're, they're all going in different places, uh, different directions, but we pray that you would guide them as they seek to live out their faith and as they strive to live for you. But Father, that, that's the prayer for all of us, that we would strive to, to uh, live out our faith and live for you in all that we do. Help us all to take ownership of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, that's one of my favorite hymns, and that, that is how... We can go live for God. We have to cling to the cross as we go live for God. Seniors, cling to the cross as you go and live for God. So please now receive the Lord's benediction over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.